Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Scott Chopin. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies uh, based out of Long Beach, California. They are a real estate development company. Uh, they have, uh, it is founded in 2000 and they exclusively focus on uh, workforce rental housing communities throughout California and the Western US. Um, their company has created a new uh, housing innovation called Urban Townhouse, uh, which pairs the private capital with middle income multi-generation uh, rental housing while producing market superior yields on invested equity. Historically, their company projects have delivered a 22.66 or just about 23% of programmatic IRR yields on uh, equity, which is extremely stellar that we, uh, as we all know. Uh, over 35 years uh, being in the business, Scott is a leader and a regular contributor to major news uh, outlets. He has published articles in Forbes, Globe Streets, LA Times, uh, Builder Magazine, affordable housing finance and the multifamily executive so boy the list goes on and on so uh <laughs> thank you for your time and scott uh, uh you know lives in long beach uh happily with his wife uh of 27 years uh three kids um, 19 16 and 13 uh, and boy i mean we are going to have some uh you know a lot of educational fun today so Thank you for your time, Scott. Uh, please uh, tell our listeners, uh, Scott, a little bit about your background and how you came about into, uh, you know, sort of the Urban Pacific Company and the niche you focus on right now. Sure. Thanks, Sakar. Glad, glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. So my background, really, I, I uh, grew up in a family that was in the real estate development business. Uh, my family's been active in real estate development in Long Beach since 1960. So I had the great, you know, opportunity to you know, grow up around the business. Uh, although, you know, when I was young, that wasn't necessarily going to be my career choice. But as I matured and started to determine what career I wanted to pursue, real estate development really became a, you know, really the primary and ultimate focus of my career and, and what I still do now, all those, all those many years later. Mm -hmm. So I basically began my career working for a couple of uh, significant uh, real estate development companies. I worked for a subsidiary of a company called KB Home, or it used to be sure. called Kaufman Road uh, back in the days. And I worked there uh, for a guy named Mike Costa in their multi-housing group. And that was a unique, um, you know, retail, not a retail offer, but a subsidiary of this home building company that built and syndicated apartment projects. So it was completely mm -hmm. unique offer for that company. I uh, was there for a few years. Um, great working with Mike. In fact, still do business with him now. Uh, then uh, moving forward, I went to work for a company called Saris Regis Group in Orange County. 
uh, another you know well-known regional, uh, really West Coast uh, apartment development company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do industrial as well, commercial. I was on the multifamily development side, uh, heading up their you know multifamily development operations, mm-hmm. uh, or really you know r- the real estate development process uh, with them. And then in uh, 2000, late 99, I left uh, Sarah Street just to form what is Urban Pacific Group of Companies. Mm-hmm. And we really always um, were focused on the urban infill real estate development environment. So back in 2000, mm-hmm. it was developing uh, different housing assets. We've always been a housing developer, really an apartment developer, if you look mm-hmm. at our history. But we always pursued projects that were in urban infill locations. So urban, mm-hmm. what you'd expect in the city, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. In existing neighborhoods. Uh, but infill is is a terminology where we're looking for projects that use uh, vacant parcels or underutilized parcels in the existing urban fabric. So we're not sure. going to go sure. out to green fields or on the peripheral areas of a city we want to find uh, projects that are inside you know the already existing fabric and that's sort of a unique offer not so much today i think it's more mainstream but definitely in 2000 when i formed the company it was really just a handful of companies that really did that and and really understood the the urban dynamic well it is it is um, absolutely then, a very challenging space right uh, scott i mean uh, going into infill housing and mm-hmm. you know let's say if you're raising an existing uh, uh, you know older building of sorts or perhaps if you have an empty lot adjacent to like you know like two high rises or something uh, right. and we all have seen those projects and I can mm-hmm. imagine how challenging they are. So please go ahead with your story. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is. Well, it's interesting, Sakar. It's a great question because in some ways it's more difficult, right? So I think things like environmental issues on sites, like let's sure. say it was an mm-hmm. old gas station. You have you know, an underground tank that you need to deal with. Um, you might have existing tenants in the building that you need to vacate to get ready. Sure. Um, but in other ways, it's actually easier. And, and particularly in California, we have a very difficult entitlement process. So entitlements would be rezoning the property. Um, mm-hmm. In California, it's something called the General Plan Amendment. And in that case, actually, the city is easier because it's an already existing fabric mm-hmm. for the most part. And I'm, I'm generalizing. For the sure. most part, when you go develop an underutilized site, in many cases, you know, the neighborhood's okay with it. Now, not always, again, but in, in many cases, it's easier versus... If you're, you know, on a what, what we call a greenfield, right? Sure. Never been built before. Um, you might have neighbors around that that you know want that to stay as an open green space. Um, maybe you might have, you know, uh, animals or you know insects that are you know in, endangered on that site. And so, you, sure. in in many ways, it's more difficult. So, we've always found the challenges to be appropriate challenges. Appropriate meaning ones that we can resolve mm-hmm. and be profitable, right? Ultimately, sure, sure. as a real estate developer, we need to make good site assessments, build profitable projects, pick the right markets and the right tenant base in order to produce viable projects. Um, and so I'll, I'll stop there and, and see what other questions you have about that. Hope sure, sure, sure. It, it sounds like from your bio, uh, Scott, that you have always been into multifamily new development in mm-hmm. in one shape or the other uh, sounds like right and, and that's that's absolutely unique actually to have a uh, sort of a real estate background from the start from your uh, father like a family background mm-hmm. and then you know as you're starting your young career right 
uh, you are also, you know, teaming up with other developers, developing multifamily, you know, uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, quite unique. And I haven't had a guest uh, as, uh, you know, in-depth background as you have specifically into multifamily, uh, uh, you know, like new development. So yeah. I, I would like to, you know, maybe ask you some questions around it, uh, Scott, as to sure. uh, how different it is where from a, uh, sort of a planning uh, perspective or perhaps even the, um, I, I don't know whether you're rezoning it uh, uh, or, or anything, uh, because, you know, I imagine that, uh, uh, you know, let's say in a single family sort of a subdivision development, as we say that, yeah, we are going horizontal, meaning, you know, you're mm-hmm. laying your utilities and whatnot, and then we go vertical for all our uh, sort of construction of sorts, right? So the going the, the horizontal and the vertical, but I guess, when we are going into multifamily, whether it is, uh, I don't know, whether like a high rise or a garden style apartments of sorts, right? Uh, could you maybe help us understand uh, how it differs uh, versus, you know, let's say a traditional uh, single family subdivision uh, of sorts? Sure. So what's the difference between developing multifamily de- versus developing like single family, we might say? Sure, sure, sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a great question. So, you know, when, when you do single family subdivisions or land development, so, so first let's differentiate between land development and, you know, vertical development and, and people don't call that, but you know, the difference between land development and actually, you know, building buildings, right? Right, That'd be the way to differentiate Mm -hmm. it. And you described it a little bit in your earlier point with, you know, horizontal versus vertical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so in single family, you're going to have, you typically have, not always, but typically you have a separation between land developers and home builders, right? Right. And land developers, you know, they, they do the entitlements, they do the subdivision maps, uh, they may do rezoning if that's required. And then they'll come in and they'll do the utilities, you know, infrastructure, maybe they'll do some streets and then they'll sell lots to home builders, right? right. And the home right. builders come in. And they, they're, particularly the public home builders, they want to buy a ready-to-go product, right? They just, right. they're to build vertically and sell homes, right? Almost like a manufacturer, right, is the way I think of it. Right. Um, so, and, and sometimes you have the combination. You might have a land developer that also does the, the build out. Um, but I think particularly in the institutional world, public, publicly traded companies, mm-hmm. home builders want to just, you know, they want to manufacture homes and sell it, right? right. Very, very much a production mm-hmm. orientation. Now, on the other side of it would be multifamily, where usually the developer, they may buy land from a land developer. Maybe you buy a a multifamily parcel that's part of a larger mixed-use project, maybe some commercial Mm -hmm. hotel, multifamily, right? Um, But I think more often, in my mind, you would find multifamily developers that really end up doing the entitlements, if that's required, and the infrastructure and the, you know, the land development portion. And then they also do the vertical, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of a, you know, all, you know, all in one process. And in fact, I described that way, because that's exactly how we operate. Right. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things that we do, because we're, in essence, vertically integrated in, in that way that we're describing now, um, we'll, we do entitlements, like we do rezoning uh, processes mm-hmm. and, and act- actually historically have done a ton of it, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, particularly around our urban townhouse model, we actually are selecting sites that don't need that. We mm-hmm. purposely are only purchasing sites that are what we call by right, which basically means the zoning is already correct and you just need to do your construction drawings and submit to plan check. And we did mm-hmm. that amongst other things to simplify or expedite or, or make more efficient the process of 
producing our projects mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, um, reducing complexity in the real estate development process to me is the thing that, that is the best for the bottom line. In fact, the, the sure. saying I have so far is complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development, right? Sure. So if you well, want to well be said. profitable, <laughs> you want to be pro profitable, you got to simplify. Now it never is simple, right. right? It's never easy. It always has this challenge, but what you want to work on, maybe call it risk mitigation, maybe another way to describe it. But I, sure. I'm looking at, taking out of the process what I call friction, right. right? Friction would be if you have to do a rezoning process, right? That's friction. And if you say, I only buy sites that have zoning, then you take that friction out, right? Yeah. Um, in, in our construction cycles, right? We, we also, you know, build our projects in-house. We look to reuse the same unit plan over and over again. In fact, we can talk a little bit later about our, you know, the model UTH, mm -hmm. which is a five-bedroom, sure. four-bath townhouse rental product. But the point I'm making here is that we really want to use the same specifications over and over again, use the same subs, use the same architect, civil, and, and other vendors so that each project gets more and more efficient. I mean, we're now several projects into our UTH model now going mm -hmm. on th three years of delivering this, you know, uh, private capitally financed workforce housing model. And we are probably the most efficient that I've ever seen our operations really in the entire history of, of our mm -hmm. company. And not to say that we didn't always seek out efficiency, mm -hmm. but particularly in urban projects and doing what are called podium projects, think mid-rise, you know, apartment housing, mm -hmm. new construction, each site was different. Each building was a one-off design. Now what we do in our UTH model is each site is different as all sites are, right? A land sure, site, sure. but we'll mm -hmm. put our same unit type in, you know, maybe it's a building of three units or a building of six or building of 10, mm -hmm. but we lay those out across whatever site we have at the time and make the plan footprint that we do over and over again, the UTH model fit, you know, how many ever units we can on a given site. So we're, we're, we're basically designing you know, the UTH model to fit on any given piece of land, but that's the same unit type. So all those add up to efficiency. And there's several others that I, I won't go into now. We can sure. talk about it if we want, but really ultimately we're trying to simplify making the process more expedited, more efficient, so that basically at the end of the day, we can turn around and complete as quickly as possible uh, reduce time periods so we can get to income production through rental of units, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's what we're here to do. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that start to generate yield for our investors. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification, uh, mm -hmm. Scott. Um, now, you mentioned several times, uh, Scott, about urban townhouse, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, model that you have, right? L let's go into that. Like you said that you do infill projects, right? Now, right. I want to kind of ask you some contrasting question here. Like, uh, um, you know, like uh, personally, I have done lots of repositioning where we will take townhouses uh, or, you know, sort of the uh, mid-rise buildings uh, mm -hmm. and sort of gut renovate them for lack of a better term, right? Mm -hmm. And here you are uh, doing a completely brand new development and that to an infill development, you know? Uh, so for a novice eye, right? It sounds pretty uh, complex as it is, right? But from a cost and a return perspective as well, uh, it definitely is, uh, you know, has its uh, complexities uh, layered multiple times, right? So uh, give us a sense of um, 
why not just do uh, you know existing buildings and renovate them uh, uh, you know as minimally and as effectively as possible sure. versus doing the new development or you know sort of your style so i'm just curious yeah. to know your thoughts on that yeah so that's a great question and and so the way i think of it sakar is really uh, you have value add, right? The, the sure. remodel that you describe and then you have new construction, right? These are the right. sort of categories we're talking about generally. Where I go with it is, you know, I, I today, particularly in the era we are in now in June of 2020, I really, uh, we created this, the idea of recession prone assets versus recession resilient assets, mm-hmm. right? And I think everybody today who's listening to this program as we're in the coronavirus recession of, of 2020, mm-hmm. really everybody moves immediately to the narrative of, I, I want to go find distressed assets, right? And, mm-hmm. and particularly anybody who went through the 2008 recession, you know, there was a fair amount of that product. Okay? Sure. Mm-hmm. And so what I start to think about and how we differentiate our urban townhouse model, and this gets to the logic that you're asking about, well, like, sure. why do this new construction versus value add, is that ultimately as a new construction developer, I get to have certain advantages that a value add uh, sponsor or, or deal maker, it, it, they, can't, they can't take advantage of. So one of mm-hmm. the things that I describe is we're able to build new units in any market that we want, that we choose, of course, we're, we're assessing the markets very, very diligently. But at the end of the day, as a value add investor or sponsor, you are only going to be able to buy the assets that are either on the market actively or projects that you find, you know, off market, right? right. And, but you're stuck with the neighborhood. If sure. you wanted to be three blocks over, really go, gosh, this value add asset is great, but I really want to be three blocks over because it's a better neighborhood. I, as a new construction developer, I can go three blocks over. Now, maybe mm-hmm. there's no land there, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's no you know, capability to develop there, but I have that, the, the advantage of being able to move my project. Now, I don't literally move it, but I move my choice, right? Mm-hmm. So there's one. Another one is basically the pro, what I call programming. So what's your unit mix and what's your unit types, right? Mm-hmm. As a value add investor, you're always going to have to buy what the project has, right? If it's all sure. got all studios and that happens to be the neighbor that you want to be in and the, mm-hmm. and the timing's right and the price is right, that's all good, but you still have all studios, right? Sure. Now, maybe you could combine two studios into one bedroom. I mean, people do that, but I think that's like, that's less common for us we get to design exactly what we think is going to fit the marketplace at that time, but also what we think can be stable and, and recession resilient over the long run. Right? So our urban townhouse model is a five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental unit, garage on the ground floor, uh, bedroom, bathroom, one of the five is on the ground floor. And, and the reason that we design it that way is because we want to serve working families. Mm-hmm. that live multi-generationally, right? So commonly, you know, outside of the United States and then historically in the United States, people didn't live in our classic nuclear family that we, we know so well here in the U.S. And, and we're certainly moving away from that. But if you have a family that lives multi-generationally, that has grandma at, a grandpa at home or older in-laws, and you're building a studio unit, you can never serve that family. They, they sure. couldn't live in your unit. And you wouldn't want them to, right? You don't want, you know, too sure. many people... But we're able to really custom design and place our units to serve those families or whatever we think is the right tenant demographic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we have that advantage. 
Uh, the other one of the other advantages I think about is when you're done with it, we hold all of our projects long-term hold. So we raise capital, you know, normally from investors, high net worth, mm -hmm. and family offices, but we hold long-term, really 10 years and and beyond. We have a brand new asset. Day Absolutely. one, mm -hmm. it's it's today's code, it's all, today's systems, it's today's technology. And so we can have a much longer lifestyle expectation or life cycle expectation of, of that project, right? So those are some of the some of the differences that I think about. And so why why recession prone versus recession resilient? Mm -hmm. Is because ultimately when you buy, say, that existing asset that's distressed, well, it became distressed for a reason, right? Sure. Whatever reason, it's going to be different. But let's say it's all studios in a marketplace that doesn't really have great demand for students. Yes, I can buy it at a discount. Yes, I'm getting a great deal. And maybe it's enough, you know, margin and the discount to like be fairly solid, like whatever, however it performs. But where I go with it is, does that project become recession, you know, impacted again in the future? Right. Because the long-term trend says that studios really are not appropriate. Now I'm speculating every market is going to be different right sure, sure. versus us where we think our product particularly but we focus on recession resilient assets is what are products that actually perform better in a recession right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and our uth model is that in, in in one way which is that we're the place where single earner households the adult kid basically moves out of their you know apartment because they can't afford it anymore and where and where do they go and in part is they may move in with their family or they may move in with roommates, right? And this mm -hmm. is, you know, overlaid, you know, underneath a recessionary environment, right? Where our unit is where people come to combine together. And we call it recombination is actually the, the distinction we use for it. That sure. could be a recombination of a family group, say grandma's moving in or adult kids, boomerang kids move home. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be roommates, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, we, we have a, a name for that. We call it uh, Sorry, we call it economic sharing. So they share incomes and expenses across the family group. Sure, sure. Right. And, and, and as fact, you described, another name like for this. A, you said it's a five bedroom, two bath uh, model, right? So obviously it is- Five bedroom, four bath. Wow, okay. Yeah. So it, yeah. it certainly is serving a uh, sort of a larger uh, or a, uh, you know larger family. And as you rightfully said that, multiple folks sometimes within the family are coming together or, or sometimes do you find that maybe unrelated uh, adults or you know like a professional working class uh, uh, folks also rent uh, these units uh, like roommates sure sure uh -huh. yeah we certainly do i mean our our intention you know is to serve families right sure. really we have a mm -hmm. certain you know, ethical standard, ethical meanings, you know, standard con or conduct that we decide for ourselves, like, you know, sure. standards of conduct for ourselves. Um, but if, if, you know, roommates come together um, and, you know, obviously if they qualify in our, in our, you know, through our property management team, then, then, you know, we welcome them, right. We, we don't resist that necessarily, but particularly one of the things uh, that's unique about UTH car is that we're actually building and we're sourcing land and building, in B and C neighborhoods. So interesting. Um, mm -hmm. what that means is that we're usually locating new projects in neighborhoods where the family demographic that we serve already lives there. So these would be middle income blue collar families mm -hmm. um, living in a B or C level neighborhood. I find more often that professional roommates when they're 
particularly generating higher incomes, usually will 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 seek Class out a, like better right. neighborhoods. Right. And nothing right. wrong with that. It's completely sure, coherent. Sure. Mm -hmm. We just say that's not necessarily the demographic that we choose You're to targeting. serve per se. Right. 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 So there's no, you know, and again, I I have no uh, opinion about what's right or wrong. There is no right or wrong choice sure. for those tenants. They they're all valid, right? right? right. You, we just say, look, we we want to rent to families that do economic sharing, um, that work in the service industry, that, that have strong social networks around the neighborhoods where they already live. So kids in school, extended families close by, churches mm. down the road, and particularly jobs are close by. Usually our tenants on average are, are commuting only 10 to 20 minutes from wherever the housing is. They choose mm. housing that's co-located their job. What I say when you have that style of tenant, they're very stable. In fact, Absolutely. we describe them as sticky because they basically, when a recession comes or when changes happen, they generally stick, right? They Absolutely. batten down the hatches, the economic share. Sure, and I just sure. say, look, I want to I rent to those stable families as a choice, as the business model couldn't, versus couldn't, couldn't professionals who will be more mobile and move more quickly. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I see within uh, our portfolio as well. I mean, we have the houses and the townhouses and we have the apartments and we'll see the cyclic nature within apartments, but within townhouses and single families. I mean, you know, same families tend to six, I mean, you know, go on for years and years. I mean, in fact, in, in house, we have some families that have been with us since 2000. Uh, six or seven, actually, believe me. Right. So very long-term <laughs> tenancy in those types of absolutely. units, then, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, yeah. Scott, uh, give us a sense of uh, how many units you have built in the last, uh, I guess, three years and mm -hmm. uh, what today's uh, sort of the supply pipeline looks like. Is it something, um, you know, very much available? And, and again, I want to like uh, just preface this by saying that we are talking about infill urban projects. So, um, you know, these are not sometimes readily available. So I would be curious to know, you know, uh, how many you built and what sort of pipeline it looks like today. Sure. So historically as a company, we've developed several thousand units uh, of apartment new construction, sort of like mm -hmm. you described in, in, in the, uh, the introduction. Mm -hmm. And then uh, about three years ago, and, and most of that was urban infill, sort of like we talked about, sure. usually high, much higher density, over 100 units to the acre, uh, a, a product type we call podium, mm -hmm. which is like a mid-rise, say four levels of you know, structure over a parking garage, right? Mm -hmm. Like in, infill areas in the city. Sure. And we did a bunch of that, got really good at it. But it, about three years ago, we noticed uh, that the market was starting to mature in that space. So in mm -hmm. other words, a lot of developers were coming into that space, a lot of very good names, the Trammell Crows and the Holland Partners of the World, really, really powerful companies. Mm -hmm. And it's been always been our, uh, our style that we are always looking for the, the niche undersupplied market. Where, are, where, do, where is our high demand and low supply where it's not being competed for greatly. So we're always sure. looking for that space and innovating mm -hmm. to try to create products around that. So three years ago, we, we basically, several events happened that sort of guided us into what is now the UTH model, but particularly we, we sourced a site in Long Beach, in our hometown of Long Beach. We have great relationship with the city there. And we're able to buy the land actually from the city of Long Beach, they owned it for very, very, you know, good price. Like, you know, I think we ended up paying 45,000 a unit, uh, you know, wow. the, the zoning allowed 
Um, so we, we had this great purchase. Like we, we just purchased great, again, this B and C neighborhood, right? Adjacent to downtown Long Beach. But interesting enough, the, 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 so the, the land price gave us the ability to experiment. This is the key to the, sure, to the sure, process, sure. right? So we, we couldn't like mess it up too badly and, and still not break even or make money, right? right? So the zoning for that site allowed a certain unit count, but it didn't have any restriction on the size of the units, interestingly enough. And that <laughs> we hadn't come across that before, just a unique sort of characteristic of the zoning in that particular neighborhood. And so when we started to design the site, and, and working with the architect, I, I sort of was going, well, okay, we, we're limited on unit count, but we can do any unit we want. I go, well, why wouldn't we go, look, let's look at a bigger unit, like, you know, more bedrooms to me, I could generate more rent with that, right? So we ended up, that was the first project that was in the UTH model or the mm -hmm. UTH business plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 Scott, and, how much uh, is the square feet of this UTH model in interior, uh, uh, you know, just so that I understand uh, the you know how big these are the the square foot uh, of the model itself yeah the square footage is what what you're asking yeah so so the units that are our standard uth model is 1750 square feet mm -hmm. five bedrooms four bathrooms just a little description a two-car garage two-car private direct access garage on the ground floor so these mm -hmm. are a townhouse unit so they they're, they're, they're built to rent, but they live like a home, right? You live sure. above and below yourself, right? Um, so to answer your, your previous question, you know, sort of like, you know, pipeline and how do we get to that? Mm -hmm. In the very beginning of, the, of this business plan, when we came finally to arrive at the idea that this UTH model, this big bedroom count, it's going to, you know, be a plan that we wanted to work more on. We actually put together a small group of four projects, which we call the demonstration phase. And we purposely bought very close to, you know, our offices in Long Beach, we, you know, in, in areas that we knew really well. And we ended up completing the first three projects and sold each of those for around on average about 500,000 a door, which, you know, and, you know, whatever market people might be in that may, may not sense, but in California, that's actually a very good, uh, price per door sure and it happened to be that because the units were so large and we generated so much whole dollar rent that the that the limit for the appraised price and sale was not square footage or the cap rate but it was the per unit comparables in the marketplace and so we got sort of hit the upper limit of it a per unit price uh, coherent on a per square foot price valuation and appraisal and sale and then initially enough when we sold these projects uh, although we were you know, reaching peak market prices at, for sale, the cap rates that the people were buying at were like five and a half and six cap rate for a brand new product in California, which was amazingly like good, like sure. really good value. Meaning, you know, uh, you know, they were sort of buying new product at a discount to the market, right? Cause cap rates are, you know, were at the time four, 4% and below in some cases. So we actually developed several small projects in that pipeline. This is answering your question. Mm -hmm. And the first three we sold. And then the fourth one we're actually finishing now. And we're actually going to hold that. About 18 months ago, we made, these, we made two assessments. One was that the recession, a recession was coming. Sure. Right? We mm -hmm. didn't know when or what the nature of it would be. But we were anticipating that you know, we were on the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, Absolutely. certain signals, the yield curve had gone negative. So we were anticipating a, a, a recession. So we said long-term hold, 
puts us in a defensive position. If we have stable tenant base, like I described before, sticky families, sure. mm-hmm. that we could ride through a recession. Valuations may fluctuate, but from 2008, we saw that NOIs and rent levels in Southern California were relatively stable, right? So we go, hold it, don't have to sell it, stable income. We can ride out over the long run valuation changes, right? So it's sort of a defensive mechanism. But ultimately, we made that decision really as or really more importantly is that we believe in this model so much car that we're like we want to own everything that we built okay so (laughs) we finished that 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 you know demonstration phase and now we're in the production phase and so we have several new projects so i think all total i think we're coming up on 10 projects total wow and our project sizes range anywhere from right now uh, on the low end around 15 units up to one of the larger projects that we're working on is 85 units. And I think we'll, we'll sort of continue in that range of, of project sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in this recession that we're in the last several weeks, uh, we actually think there's a story to do, you know, more small close in projects in Long Beach to remain very nimble, small means we can execute them quickly. Mm-hmm. We can buy zone sites like we talked about before. They're close to our office so they can be managed much more simply and easily. And now we're just going to go do a bunch of those. And that's supported by the fact that really the business plan, the UTH business model is accelerating. So we talked about that recombination idea mm-hmm. before, that mm-hmm. economic sharing model. Right. So we're seeing even during this coronavirus lockdown or now we're coming out of it, that we're able to lease units at good velocities, meaning the absorptions were, were pretty good. Know, stable mm-hmm. and, and productive. And in fact, in, in the Fullerton project, which we're leasing up and, and about to occupy them in the next month or less, we're actually above Proforma in our rent. So in that case, wow. we underwrote 3,500 for that five bedroom, four bath unit. And we were actually achieving 3,800 a month. So 300 nice. above Proforma in a recession, right? So we're a counterintuitive offer, Sakar, where we're actually accelerating. We're one of those products that are accelerating during a recession, not being, you know, distressed. That's where the dis- distress resilient idea came from. Right, right. And, and pretty much hallmark of, uh, I guess, low supply and uh, a very uh, high demand, that's for sure, right? Uh, now, Scott. Um, right. Uh, yeah, that's right. For, for your, um, the larger 85 unit that you're doing, or perhaps the midsize that you may have, right? Are these um, like sort of co-located in terms of like, you know, four units in a building uh, and four units? Give us a sense of, uh, you know, how they look physically. Yeah, so great question. So I alluded to it a little bit earlier and it's hard for me to describe it, but I'll do my best. So we're, we're using that same footprint, that same five bedroom, two car garage footprint. You know, our units generally about 23 feet wide by about 35 feet deep. And I'm giving you rough numbers here. Sure, depends, sure. You know, it depends a little bit on the. So all we do is we'll get a, a piece of land, Sakar, and we just lay out the, that unit type in some group of buildings. So maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an, a, you know, like let's say a triangular site, those are hard to lay out. Sure. You know, as the triangle comes together, you actually will fit units. So you'd have three and then you'd have five and then you have 10, right? As you move away from the constricted corner. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so we just basically take any site and we look to lay it out with, with modules of different unit counts in a mm-hmm. single building. So it might be three, it might be five, it might be seven units in a building, right? And mm-hmm. then we just lay out the driveways 
and the, you know, the open space and the unit layouts to maximize efficiency of unit count on a given piece of ground. In fact, on average, we generally yield about 22 units per acre. Mm -hmm. So we can look at pretty much any site and just say, if it's an acre, we know we're going to get 22 units on it. There are some qualifiers, right? Again, that triangular site's going to be less efficient. So maybe we're getting sure. 20 to the acre, you know, our perfect site for developer is, you know, a flat square, two acre site, right? Just right. really simple to lay out, good street access. And in, in those cases, maybe we could be above 22 per acre a little bit. Um, but for our rough numbers, when we underwrite deals in the beginning, when somebody sources a deal for us, brokerage, mm -hmm. you know, uh, networks that we have, cities that bring us sites, you know, we can do a very quick, you know, analysis of, hey, we can lay out, you know, we know 22 the acre, we can get this many units, we'll assess rents, we can underwrite a, a pro forma, we can do that all that within, you know, less than an hour, right? If, if you wow. know, the, the mm -hmm. team is, you know, available to sit down and run numbers, um, but we have one of the advantages of this production model, right? This mm -hmm. efficiency, this, this lessening of complexity is it allows us to underwrite prod new projects very, very quickly because we have such good understanding of our layouts, of our design costs, of our bill costs, right? Um, everything is so well-documented and efficient, really mm -hmm. production-oriented is what I mean when I say that, right. that mm -hmm. we can very, very quickly uh, assess new projects. And, and you know, our job really is to you know, identify a good site and underwrite it very quickly. And it's either a quick pass or, or hey, it's going to make it to the next step. And sure, then we'll sure. maybe get it tied up and go into due diligence in that right, kind of right. process. Give, so. give us a sense of the cost, uh, uh, Scott, now that we, mm -hmm. we are on that topic. Uh, uh, yeah. I want to ask you, like, you know, uh, like uh, explain us, like what goes into, uh, you know, like the uh, design phase cost, your mm -hmm. construction cost. And uh, also, if you can clarify, uh, we are talking about, uh, you know, build to rent type of models, right? Mm -hmm. This is not your glitzy model type or, you know, uh, like right. class A type of construction. So uh, give us a sense of cost and uh, how you achieve uh, some of those efficiencies by using like a rental grade product of sorts. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So, so we've actually explored the idea of our new housing, you know, in the, in the industry, you know, you say you've got an A product, a B product, and a C product, right? New sure. construction mm -hmm. luxuries, almost always A, right? Like, you know, right. as people talk about it commonly, but I don't look at our product as a product. Now, it is a nice product, right? Sure. You know, we use quartz countertops, you know, we have, you know, produ production grade cabinets, but they're nice. They've got self-closers, you know, we use, you know, you know, G appliances, you know, good quality product, you know, we have great vinyl plank flooring with the, you know, it's a that new type of vinyl plank flooring that's waterproof. Sure. In fact, mm -hmm. we're starting to use that throughout, like move away from carpet anymore, mm -hmm. just because the, the hard surface, this vinyl plank flooring looks great and it wears really well. And it's because it's in a, like an epoxy resin base that you can pour water over all day long and it, and it, and it performs well. So, and then beyond that, you know, we're typical, you know, finishes for your standard apartment grade. Like if you looked at our apartments, you wouldn't look at them and go, gosh, those are real low quality, right? I mean, right, we do build right, them right. that they look, you know, high quality, but we're not luxury. So, you know, we don't have tile, you know, bathroom, you know, tub, shower enclosures. Ours are fiberglass, you know, so very production oriented, right? But mm -hmm. really very in much in keeping with, you know, some markets in the U.S., 
um, you know, where you wouldn't be able to achieve luxury rents. These would be similar finishes that you would see in our projects as, as mm. you would in those other markets. We just happen to do it in California, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be a little bit, you know, uh, circumspect about the cost because it's, you know, something that we sort of hold proprietary. Sure. But just say like our, our hard cost per square foot, you know, averages somewhere, you know, between the range of about, you know, 110 and 130 a foot. And that's wow. all in. And so wow, remember we talked about. That's extremely uh, efficient. That. <laughs> it is. Now, I think there's some people in Southern California that actually do better than us because they do a lot more units. So they have sure. like higher volumes and we'll get there too once our volumes increase to the sure, level sure. that we have planned. Um, but we were, we, we, we build like a home builder builds. In other words, we don't use a general contractor. We manage the construction in house like a mm. home builder does. And then we contract directly with the subcontract markets. That's how mm -hmm. home builders mm -hmm. typically do it. Why call it that way? In fact, we describe it internally as the CM prime model. So we, as a developer, the CM, right? We run it like a GC, although we don't mm -hmm. use our GC license in a legal sense in the contractual chain. Mm -hmm. But we manage it like a GC would, right? Superintendent, right. you know, have project managers, you know, project coordinators do the contracts. But we buy the work direct from the subcontract market. So we cut out the middleman. There is no Absolutely. GC for us. Mm -hmm. That's right. one of the ways we're able to keep it cost efficient. And right. this is a proven model, right? Home builders use this all over any big home builder across the US. This is exactly how they work because they have to keep it efficient. They right. don't want to pay a general contractor to mark up the subcontract pricing, right? Right. And mm -hmm. so we've adopted that model. We've been actually doing that since 2005. So we've, we've been doing it for, for quite a while right now. Sure, sure. Um, so, that, so that's a good range. Now, now just some, something to qualify. That price that I gave you is all in, meaning that's all the demolition, grading, all the vertical work. That includes the, you know, occasionally we have to do street utilities, Mm -hmm. But part of part of it, the, our work that we do, because we're in the infill environment, we're not running major utilities for half a mile of a sure. water line. Or They're a already line. there, right? It's already right out in the street in front of our site. Right. In fact, You're you know, tapping, the longest it. we've had to go in the last several projects was like twenty or thirty feet to the <laughs> middle of the street, right in front of our site. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we we run them on site. You know, as the water comes onto site, we do the on site distribution. So that price I quote you is for everything, not right. just the vertical. This is, you know, all the, all the, all the horizontal and the vertical, if you will. Right. Right. Uh, and considering so, California and the, and the, you know, we, uh, knowing how expensive the labor is and everything. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really efficient price. I can tell you that. Yeah. Let, let me share also one, one thing that we're seeing right now. So again, back to this distress, distressed prone versus distressed resilient. So we talked about our, the performance of our leasing and velocities and, and rental rates is very solid right now. We are looking forward, in fact, seeing now uh, more acceleration in that business plan because we have in the recession now reduced land prices, right? Mm -hmm. As you'd expect in a recession. Sure. And then to your point uh, about you know, labor costs, is that we're already starting to see a reduction in subcontract prices because the the amount of housing that's being developed in 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 California has reduced because of the pandemic, right? Sure, People have absolutely. shut projects down. Now I think we'll probably recover relatively quickly. It looks like the economic, you know, shape of the downturn may be more V-shaped, seems like what's happening right now, at least from the, the most recent indicators. But I will tell you what, Scar, it's been amazing 
I mean, we experienced this in 2008 where subs basically had less work. And so that has them be more efficient in, in their labor costs, labor cost management, and also their, their margins, their profit percentages. They, they want to get work. They want to keep working. So they got to tighten up their, their, their budgets and their margins. Sure. We've seen a huge acceleration in our construction activities because from the pandemic, a lot of labor became available very, Absolutely. very quickly. Because, Absolutely. And so, and I, and I don't, I don't enjoy the fact that that happened. In fact, I'm, I'm, you know, for me, it, it, it you know, ethically we go lock, we, we don't wish to see people in that, in that situation, but I'll tell you what, we're so happy to be able to keep people gainfully employed on our projects. Sure. Construction sure. remained an essential activity in California. We're very fortunate that way. And all the cities we worked in, remained open. And in some cases we doubled the crews that we had. So our framer basically almost double the amount of labor that he was able to supply to our project, which mm -hmm. is probably at this point going to cut around three months off of our, we were going to build in 12 months. Uh, this is a Montebello project. Uh, we're going to be in a, about a nine month cycle. So we shortened up dramatically. Oh. Uh, so we, you know, lower land cost lower construction costs, more, more expedient delivery of construction, all those really drop to the bottom line. Sure, if you hold sure. all else equal, meaning rents, you know, are, right. are stable, render profile stable. We got projects and we're fortunate that we have lenders that remain, uh, construction lenders that remain uh, uh, really loving our UTH model. They see the viability of it in the recession. Awesome. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, this is a, us patting ourselves on the back. I just am so, you know, uh, you know, have so much gratitude and, and, and a positive feeling to be able to keep people employed, to be serving these families that need this housing in this time of pressure from the economy and the recession. And, you know, we can continue to deliver profitable projects. So we're actually in, in it really in an expansion mode right now. Awesome. And, awesome. and we'll be continuing to raise capital, you know, around these, these new projects that we develop. Sure, sure. Now, Scott, uh, before we run out of time, one, one last question here. Um, how is the investor appetite uh, for this product, meaning, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, passive investors investing in your projects and things like that? Uh, how do they uh, perceive this? And what, what do you see? Like, uh, is there a, a great demand? I mean, you have yeah. uh, lots yeah. of capital uh, knocking on your door. So, you know, we're, we're, we're a company that, that traditionally moved in the institutional capital world, right? If you look at our, our, you know, several thousand units that we've developed over the history, they're, they're almost all predominantly institutional capital sources. Mm -hmm. Over the last three years, as, a, as we've developed this UTH business plan, it's really given us occasion to, to start to build networks of investors in the high net worth, small family office, Mm -hmm. high net worth family um, domains. And so we're very encouraged by that. We continue to grow that network and, and, you know, and want to grow it more. Um, so to answer your question, we've actually had very good success. So we, we just had a project 1491 Atlantic. In fact, we're about to close out the final equity piece. Uh, we ended up raising the capital. It wasn't a, a very large project. It was 500,000 of equity. So, you know, relatively small deal. Uh, but we ended up raising that. I think we're at 450000 after about a, a couple of weeks of, of raising wow. capital mm -hmm. on the deal. Mm -hmm. So very quick. Uh, the investors, when we taught, this is part of the reason that we developed the narrative of recession prone versus recession resistant, mm -hmm. because we knew when the economy changed, 
what we anticipated that these families would be relatively stable. Now we couldn't have anticipated that the service sector would be hit as, as hard as it has been restaurant right. workers, right. retail. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're also seeing that that's rapidly recovering. Right. And in the, in sure. you know, some of these job gains, you know, historical job gains that we're having right now. So as we talk about the differentiation between distressed asset investing and new construction investing, of course, most sophisticated investors go, Oh, this is the time for distress. Right. I mean, and that's appropriate and, and sure. there may be distress like we anticipate and we saw that in 2008. But really where we're in conversation with investors and this is really the way that we're able to track them, but particularly for, for investors that have very long-term hold objectives. So like say a family office or really high net worth uh, individual investor um, who has a long-term hold horizon. The idea of investing in a, a, a stable, you know, long-term runner base, like these working families mm -hmm. and an undersupplied story, like you mentioned before. I mean, in California, we have such a difficult entitlement and development environment that we're probably never going to catch up to our undersupply in certain market spaces sure, sure. as workforce, maybe ever, mm -hmm. or it may take several decades. And we're, we're suffering from undersupply generally over the last several decades. Right. We're making some moves now to create new laws, but the reality is politics and, and, and economic cycles along these are, are very slow to change. Um, so we, we see long-term viability, stability in that particular renter profile. And then you get to invest in a brand new asset. Absolutely. So we're, Absolutely. we're having good, good success raising capital. I mean, we need to meet many, many, many more new investors, right. To, to fulfill the, the capital needs that we're going to have on a go forward basis. Um, but we're encouraged, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to have a story that has economic viability, meaning we, we have renters who want to rent, we have investors who want to invest, lenders that want to lend, uh, this long-term, you know, stable story of, of these renter families, but also it's got great economic, or uh, sorry, social characteristics, right? So we're able sure. to you know, serve these families coherently with their lifestyle and keep people working, not only keep people working, but we actually can employ more new people. So awesome. I'm awesome. very mm -hmm. encouraged to be able to, to speak this narrative in this particular and, and you know, time and, in, 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 you know, the recession and, and this part of the economic cycle, vastly different than 2008, where housing was, was, you know, highly, uh, highly damaged, particularly the for sale markets. And a lot of people did leave for sale and go into the multifamily markets, by the way, at that time, and that's what right. had multifamily be stable in 08. We look anticipated that it would be the same in the next recession. Uh, I think we're moving more long-term to, you know, more renter families, uh, more multi-generational families living multi-generationally, like the, right, the, right. the statistics for that are, are rising. So all these things add up to, I think, a, a very positive combination. And look, Cigar, we don't sit here and say we're bulletproof. Gosh, it's all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Sure. I mean, we, we have to be vigilant. We have to anticipate and, and always be looking for whatever breakdowns in the economy and, and renter profiles, but we're always continuously assessing that. Uh, we use economic tracking tools, very, very, you know, uh, very disciplined way. We're, we're reviewing weekly. Uh, we do, you know, market comparable updates on rents, like almost constantly. We used to do it every three months. Now we do it once a month. <laughs> Just to be careful that if any signal starts to go against our model, sure. Mm -hmm. that we can see it early 
um, and anticipate and plan for it, right? Absolutely, um, and, absolutely. And so far, we've been able to do that, uh, you know, with relative success in, in today's awesome, environment. Awesome, awesome. And you're correct, Scott, that we have to, you know, always monitor regularly and see what may pop up. Now, uh, on to the, uh, just one last question uh, there, Scott, like, uh, please share with the listeners, uh, you know, how they can find you and learn more about your company and everything. Sure. Yeah, appreciate that, Sakar. So I would encourage everybody to go to our website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. Uh, when you get there, look for a couple of things. So there's a red button, sign up for our Saturday e-blast. A lot of great information about the multifamily markets. Uh, we share all the articles that we read and find ourselves about the economic cycle. You know, we're, we're showing people how to you know, look at development deals, how to assess them as an investor, think investor education. Um, then I would also go on the website, go to our investor education section. We have tons and tons of articles, videos, you know, podcasts, um, you know, just tons of data, really, you know, centering on educating investors to, you know, be better investors generally, but also to, to be educated in the new construction investment. Awesome. You know, awesome. Arena. Mm. And then the last, uh, there's a contact page on there, uh, on our website, Scar, and people, the, my, my personal, my corporate, but direct email is on there. And then my cell phone's on there. So I encourage people, if they're interested to talk and reach out, they're welcome to email me. That's going to get best response. I have a team of folks who help me with that. And then if people want to text me on my cell phone number, I welcome that as well. Um, so, you know, we're, we're immediately available. And then uh, go check out our LinkedIn page, uh, LinkedIn slash Scott Choppin. We have a company page and then also take a look at our YouTube page. Awesome. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, uh, Scott. I appreciate you uh, coming on to the show and I look forward to Sikar, chatting more you on so your for more information. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Sakar. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. Music